So today we're talking to Francis. Hi, Francis. Hello. Uh, great to have you on. Uh, you are a person who works at a company called Shortcut, and I know you're a big on closure. Uh, but before we go there, how about a few words about Francis? Sure. Uh, gosh, I am... <laughs> Uh, didn't think of this question. I'm originally from New York, mm -hmm. um, and I made my way kind of down the coast to D.C., where I met my wife, and then mm -hmm. moved to Louisiana, where mm -hmm. I am now, and I have been for 10 years. Uh, and Louisiana is also where my closure career started, uh, something like uh, oh, at least eight years ago. Um, and uh, I was... Yeah. Sure. How did you end up on closure? Like, what happened? So, I my career started as like normal web dev mm -hmm. stack. I worked for a consulting company. Um, I didn't have CS training. I was a philosophy undergrad, and mm -hmm. then I had just finished a master's in theology mm -hmm. at in Washington D.C. And uh, this was 2008. So. The, well, I mean, the job market's never was never great for a theology grad, but it was especially bad at that time. Um, so I I needed something to support myself, mm -hmm. um, and I had just been one of those guys who was always interested in computers. So mm -hmm. um, I was looking out for a job. I found an entry level job on a lamp stack. Mm -hmm. so if anyone remembers those. Right. Uh, so PHP, MySQL, for a small uh, uh, consulting company um, based in DC, like three or four employees, um, with a number of, you know, mostly magazine and think tank mm -hmm. sites around DC, um, and that's where I got started. Uh, I didn't know PHP at the time. The thing I knew best was Python, mm -hmm. um, and I had kind of played around and read about MySQL or SQL, really, right. and the relational model. Uh, so my, you know, I had philosophy background, so I was looking at kind of the logic part mm -hmm. of it. Uh, and I remember being quite astonished when, when, when it actually got to doing work, the relational model was very hidden right. and kind of irrelevant. And it was really just like, learn some, learn some SQL, right. learn you some SQL. Um, and my SQL at the time wasn't even... Uh, didn't even have cross-table transactions the way most people ran it because they used the one of those old storage engines. I don't know. I, ISAM, I want to mm -hmm. say. I don't remember. This feels like ancient <laughs> history, but it was only 15 years ago. Um, any case, so that's where I got started. Um, and uh, I worked there for five years. I did uh, a number of... It was a consulting gig, so I had lots of different projects um, coming through. Um, it was mostly in PHP, but towards the end, I was doing... Uh, probably the thing I'm most proud of is uh, there was a project for the Cato Institute to do to annotate uh, appropriations bills for earmarks. Mm -hmm. So we'd find all the earmarks in these like hundreds, hundreds of page bills uh, that we had the XML for, but the XML wasn't very semantic. It had a little bit of uh, useful annotation, but for the most part, a human, usually interns, yeah. <laughs> needed to go through it. Right. 
Um, we would annotate the companies using a classification system um, and the amounts and what they were for. We try to um, uh, line them up with their treasury account, uh, which and all of this is extremely difficult to do. This is a lot of just human effort. There isn't a right. clear correspondence one-to-one for a lot of these things. Um, but that was the point of the project. The point was to was to track this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had an XML front end for annotation. I used an XML database with XQuery for mm-hmm. storing the documents and uh, 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 storing the annotated sets, extracting uh, structured data out of it, and all of that stuff. <laughs> uh, so that was fun. And that was like the most oddball thing I did. Uh, uh, but earmarks were discontinued the following congressional year. So that was the end of that project. Um, so I guess good and bad there. Um, so I was doing this and I was just honestly, as you can see by the exoticness of the technology, uh, I was starting to get a little bored with like the typical uh, stuff that a web development company will do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just looking around and I picked up seven languages in seven weeks mm-hmm. um, and I saw closure in there. Uh, it's one of the languages and I was really, uh, I don't know, drawn to it, impressed by it because mm-hmm. it was starting to talk about uh, in a way I'd never seen anyone articulate before. Um, the real root of some of the problems I was seeing with the right. development, the, the software development languages and practices that mm-hmm. I was doing. The key one was immutability. Mm-hmm. It, I had learned early on in my PHP days just how paranoid <laughs> you have to be about uh, copying, like, like having layers of security and copying data right. from one to the other. Um, extracting keys out, right. um, checking types, because PHP is very, uh, uh, very eager to um, uh, cast types mm-hmm. silently for you, right. at least a lot of weird stuff. And of course, it's famous for uh, MySQL injections with string uh, combinations. So, it had I had developed in a uh, I had developed my engineering practices in a in a very paranoid development environment or one that it taught me to be very paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Clojure was the only one I had seen that really started to address these kind of directly. Um, and when I looked more into Rich Hickey's talks, I realized that he had some, um, you know, philosophical ideas going in to many right. of these thoughts. Uh, and, I don't know. It feel like a match made in heaven. Feel like I'd found right. something that um, I had been looking for, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, development just felt off. Yeah. And and suddenly it felt right. It felt right. like yes, these principles are important, and wow, it is so much easier right. to proceed um, when you have this foundation of immutability, foundation of. Uh, uh, functional constructs being the lowest common denominator. Right. Um, and because I was, all of my work was in information systems, the paradigm of open maps was critical too. Mm-hmm. Um, of like not 
putting everything in the type system because mm-hmm. you can't really type the box all the time. Yeah. Um, and you have to hold things that you don't understand, mm-hmm. which is something XML taught me. Um, and uh, I also saw Datomic. Datomic was new at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, it had not, I, I guess a year or two earlier, I'll have to check the dates, but Datomic was very new when mm-hmm. I encountered it. Um, and I had a keen interest in RDF and the semantic web. Mm-hmm. So, But immediately discovered how impractical it was to do anything in it and was kind of disappointed. Um, and this was the first example of a you know, triple-inspired database I had seen that was actually practical for right. the typical things you would use a MySQL for, right. which was the use cases I had. I didn't need to um, advance the... Uh, semantic web project, you know, mm-hmm. over the open web with completely uh, open logical assumptions. I really just wanted a better database to do right. my day-to-day siloed work in. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so all of these things made me very excited. So on a whim, I looked for closer jobs, mm-hmm. thinking there's no way there's anything in Louisiana. Uh, but I found one. <laughs> <laughs> There was an opening in Louisiana for this small company called Breeze EHR. They were building a medical record uh, system for small practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only were they in Louisiana, they were in my town. They were in Lafayette. Um, so I started work there, and I worked there for six years. And uh, I did some of the most amazing stuff <laughs> I've ever seen. We had a, a, a single-page web app. Yeah. Um, before it was cool, before there was React, yeah. uh, it started using ClojureScript. It was using Datomic. Uh, it's one of the large, many Datomic databases for different uh, database styles we had. It had a rules engine in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was very exotic uh, in every respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, I don't know, it really opened my eyes to the possibilities of this kind of technology. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So are you telling me that the shortcut is less exotic then? Oh, but before we jump there, what is shortcut? What is shortcut? <laughs> so shortcut is a project management, uh, uh, web application, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, the things that you would think of that are like shortcut are like Trello and Jira, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, the thing that shortcut is trying to do differently, uh, is, is trying to be a one-stop shop for every kind of project management thing you need mm-hmm. to do as an mm-hmm. integrated docs, very well integrated. Um, it has, you know, stories and epics and right. reporting. Um, and it's, and it also has a concept of a team as a unit of people mm-hmm. working. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a porous boundary. You can still see everything. You can still search for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a team is meant to focus your attention with those you work with most. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has very good VCS integration, and uh, I, I, you can kind of tell that it was born out of the frustrations of engineers. So the two founding members mm-hmm. um, were a front-end engineer and a back-end engineer who had been yeah. using Pivotal Tracker and were frustrated right um so it's a very i 
uh, individual contributor focused, engineer focused, get your work and get out of my way. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I don't know, focused on being a repository of knowledge rather than merely a work tracker. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what it is. Um, as for whether it's more or less exotic <laughs> than the stuff, I would say it's less exotic and it probably needs to be, um, just because you need this kind of thing to be more reliable, right. um, and operate at a higher scale than we were doing. Right. Um, there's a lot of slack in, uh, the medical industry outside of, um, the patient doctor patient encounter, which is what we were mm-hmm. trying to make very fast and very rules driven. Right. Um, because those, those, that's a very short amount of time you have with a patient that you can do something effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that, there's a lot of time lag, like yeah. billing, processing records, right. all of that stuff um, that's kind of ancillary to the experience. Yeah. And uh, you, it's, you know, it's very old technology and, and those stacks that you need to interface with, like mm-hmm. mainframe era uh, billing and processing systems. Uh, so that's not where we were innovating. We were innovating in a very narrow space. Of right. You have a few minutes to learn as much as you can and document as much as you can, mm-hmm. find as many uh, relationships as you can when you're with the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So shortcut, I'm, I say it's not as exotic, but it's still pretty exotic uh, by... By the you know by normal standards, the back end is entirely closure. Right. Our primary record store is Datomic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should have looked up the first transaction just to have a tidbit, but the database is probably at least eight years old, continuously mm-hmm. running. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, it's our system of record. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in there, um, and. Uh, we have a number of transaction log processing systems downstream of it. So we read the transaction log and take some action based on what it sees. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what other closure, I don't know, libraries or anything like in the stack that you're using? So, um, as I said, it's eight-year-old application, probably mm-hmm. probably nine at this point. Yeah. Um, it's the, there's a, so there's a number of, Layers, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the oldest one uh, is uh, uh, Liberator based, uh, mm-hmm. sort of. It's our little fork of Liberator sure. to uh, uh, put more. So Liberator's uh, model. So the core of Liberator's is is a decision tree. I don't know yeah. if people are aware of that, but the decision tree is is the thing that Liberator provides for you. Um, it handles the kind of web of conditions that you need in order to have a fully uh, featured compliant HTTP response. Because mm-hmm. HTTP request response rules are quite complicated once you throw in content negotiation and caching and all of that stuff. Right. Um, so uh, Liberator has a processing step, which is very important. Um, it's for saying whether the uh, input on the request is valid. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's designed in a way that's kind of supposed to not uh, dereference any IDs or 
look at any other services because mm-hmm. um, it comes after the exists or it comes before the exists check, which is when you start hitting the database. Uh, so, so our liberator fork kind of switches this a little bit, has like three steps. Um, but that is so we can put a lot of validation logic into uh, a more declarative form in the resource map. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a macro tying all this together. So you want to make a new resource. You're supposed to fill out this def resource macro that is probably at least uh, six or seven years old mm. <laughs> and has just been extended. Um, and it provides us, like, so as long as we use that, we get, um, we can generate swagger from our routes. We have all uh, uniform um, auth uh, checking and response management. Uh, we have a place to put, um, you know, database dereferencing validation checks um, and have normalized responses and so forth. So this is the core library of what we call API server. Um, or the core abstraction, I guess, that we utilize there. And this powers all of our public and private REST API endpoints. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's the oldest strata. That's mm-hmm. kind of like uh, the, the part we rely on the most. Level one. Level one. <laughs> so what's going up on level two? So level two, we've started uh, well, there are a number of experiments along the way that are kind of uh, there, but not actively developed. Mm-hmm. Um, but level two is GraphQL. So okay. we have a GraphQL server. Um, it's not for public consumption. It's really just to support um, the front end application. Um, and that is built on Licinia. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the reason why we did this um, is because you notice I haven't said anything about front-end technology. It's because the front-end team is not a closure shop. So the front-end team is JavaScript, TypeScript. Um, so their level one is an old MVC uh, pattern that mm-hmm. was kind of homegrown. Um, used an in-memory database of sorts, object store, mm-hmm. uh, and a uh, templating library mm-hmm. and a uh, controllers kind of wiring them together. Yeah. Um, so the way it worked was uh, when the application booted up, it would load all of your workspaces data. Mm-hmm. Um, all of it. <laughs> I see. Uh, which was great because every interaction after that is very low latency. Right. right? Yeah. You don't have to hit the network to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but we now have eight years worth of data for some of our customers. We have some very large customers, um, and, uh, that approach is starting to break down. Um, so there's a, and there are other reasons that the, uh, you know, related just to, um, the, uh, difficulty of, you know, maintaining an old stack like this, like, you, you know usual tech debt issues, mm-hmm. um, uh, mutation complexity, killing mm-hmm. yeah. velocity, and reducing reliability. Right. So they've been wanting to move to React for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they are in need of a better 
source of the of their data. Um, so GraphQL is an attempt to give them that. So um, there's some ancillary benefits too, like it gives us a common language to talk about schema. Sure. Um, yeah. It gets us on the same page on our data model. Mm -hmm. It's surprising how much things can drift <laughs> <laughs> over the years, uh, like concepts that the front end just kind of computed themselves or had themselves in the application. Um, we didn't really know about mm -hmm. because we weren't responsible for making them. Right. Um, uh, so anyway, so this is the beginnings. I say the beginnings. We have many pages that have already converted to this uh, mm -hmm. style quite successfully. Mm -hmm. But this is the kind of where new development is going. Um, so yeah, GraphQL backed by Licinia. Schema is shared with the front end, so we develop it together. Um, the front end is beginning to use uh, GraphQL to fetch only what it needs for the page right? Um, with the goal of making that first load as fast as possible, right? And you don't have to wait to load everything. Eight years. Um, right, so smaller interactions. Right. Um, and as they're going, they're switching to React, um, and they use Apollo as their client. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think they're still working out, like, you know, how to manage other state, but for now they're just using what React provides. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that's that, and mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know if yeah, you have any... yeah. So you've been running, as you mentioned, Atomic over the years. Uh, yes. Do you have any tips for like, you know, about Atomic, how to use it, how to maybe not use it, and what have you learned? Oh, yes. Datomic. Datomic is great. I love Datomic, but uh, <laughs> it has, it, it's, it's not without its trouble. So I, I would, okay, I would say there's a couple of things to keep in, like things I'd wish I could go back in time and tell myself about. Mm -hmm. um, now, I didn't, I didn't build this database. Like I wasn't around when this database began its life. Right. Um, uh, but um, if I could go back and tell that person, <laughs> who I guess is our CEO, uh, what to do, um, I'd say there's a couple of important things when you're, when, you're, when you're laying the foundation for a datomic database that you expect to last mm -hmm. 10 years or more. There are some things they don't tell you about. So mm -hmm. one is um, there is no... You know, you don't need to make tables, and that's very flexible, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very open domain, just right. like Closure Maps. But just like Closure Maps, it doesn't mean there are not types. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you uh, you need to keep, you need to have some kind of domain model, some right. some kind of expectation of what keys, what attributes are together. Right. Um. So Datomic now has a feature that is quite good for this called. Um, Entity specs. Mm -hmm. um, they only annotate required attributes, but you can put other ones on there too because in schema, you can put any metadata you want. So you make something to describe other things that would be on there. Um, and any, you know, weird, uh, you know, not very easily expressible cross right. attribute invariants you have, uh, you can have entity predicates for. 
that are part of the entity spec. It's just a predicate, takes the entity, says true or false. Mm-hmm. Um, so make use of those and make sure you know where where you know what the structure of your attributes are. Right. Um, so that's one thing. That's kind of at the type level. Another thing is make sure you can enumerate all of your types. Uh, there is no auto increment ID column for table uh, like you might expect in the SQL world. So you don't have an automatic way of knowing every domain entity uh, in your database. Okay. You have to bring that discipline yourself. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, have an ID or have a set of attributes even, because it's even more selective, that have the unique IDs for all of your domain types on them and know how to walk them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so when you say unique IDs, uh, are you referring here also to sequential unique IDs? Do you think that is important? They needn't be sequential. In fact, there are lots of things that are bad about sequential issuance. Um, like they're very hard to coordinate, right? Mm-hmm. It's much easier to just make a random one. Right. Um, but people do like small numbers. Uh, so uh, Shortcut does do sequential ID re- issuance. It uses transaction functions to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but those aren't the unique IDs right. in most cases. Um the unique ID is either UUID or the combination of a tenant ID and a um, small sequential right. ID. Right. Uh, I know there was a discussion at one point for Datomic to use sequential UUIDs. Uh, there's a library for, for that. Uh, to, and this uh, helps also with indexing. Uh, ah, the squids. Yeah, squids, right. Squids, yeah. Um, they do help with indexing. Mm-hmm. Um, because the uh, the way they're arranged is that the front half, the right. high bits are uh, time bits, right. and the low bits are random. So they still have enough randomness to ensure uniqueness, um, but they're designed so that if you have you know a radix style index, a sorted index like Datomic has, mm-hmm. um, most of the invalidated parts of the tree are going to be uh, at one spot near the tail if you are issuing the IDs in that order. Um, But that equation changes a bit when you have a multi-tenant database. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I'm not sure it always makes sense to use squids, and the indexing has gotten a lot better Mm -hmm. about managing that fragmentation. So I'm not saying don't use squids. There are many cases where it's a great idea to use squids. For example, um, if you assign an ID to transactions, if you have your own transaction ID, those are always issued sequentially. They only go forward. There's no tendency model. Um, uh, If you want to, you know, you want to reduce fragmentation as much as possible. And the temporality is kind of important too. So you you can walk that value index in order and get approximately the same order as the transactions are in in time by TX instant. Um, so that's a nice property too. Mm-hmm. But if you have data that isn't anchored to time, um, uh, signature IDs are a good default, but you might want to think harder. Um, and I mentioned tenancy, so that's the other thing I wish someone had talked to me about. Uh, 
So not only do you need to enumerate your domains uh, somehow, or like know how to enumerate them, that could be as simple as these attributes are the identity attributes mm -hmm. or the identifying attributes. And uh, some function knows that if I walk all of these, I'll, I'll find every entity. Or if you're really clever and really need expressibility, you can push that into a kind of meta schema in the database itself. You can mm -hmm. mark those attributes as enumerating or something like that. Um, but tenancy, it makes it a little harder. So we have, um, you know, our data model is mostly split into what we call workspaces. Mm -hmm. When you sign up, you're what we call a company, and there's some metadata there around what users are allowed, or you know what users are present, you know invites to things, stuff yeah. like that. Um, but a company can have several workspaces, which are, uh, you know, silos of right. like departments, you know, little small worlds, of, yeah, right. of of references. So references don't cross workspaces for the mm -hmm. most part, a few exceptions. Um, and once you're in a workspace, you can't see anything in another workspace. Mm -hmm. um, you have to separately be uh, given access rights to the different workspaces. Yeah. Um, so a workspace is essentially a unit of data tenancy for us. Um, so the workspace ID is critically important. And any query uh, or any request, uh, almost all of them have workspace as a parameter. Mm -hmm. So it's very important because of this to both be able to enumerate all of the data in a workspace, period, um, as quickly as you can. And when you look items up, to have an index which has some kind of affinity to mm -hmm. the workspace. Um, and there's, well, I'll talk about that later. But so in your entity design, you, yeah. in our case, we, we kind of realized this a bit late. We don't have optimal lookups for every, every workspace tenanted domain entity. Um, but uh, we started doing it as just a reference. Mm -hmm. So every entity that has a notion of belonging to a workspace has a type slash workspace uh, reference to the workspace entity. Mm -hmm. And so you can walk all those backwards to get to everything right. in the workspace. Um, and we didn't have, in the early days, we didn't have tuple types or composite right. types. Those were added, I, I act like recently, but it's been a few years now. Right. Everyone should be using these. Uh, so we could also use that as a composite type now for rapid lookup. So we know the workspace, and we have some short ID. Those are two attributes on the entity. So using that, we can um, directly look up the thing you might be looking up. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, various composite indexes, uh, composite indexes for sorts are can also use that workspace ref as a as a first component. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, think about tenancy very early in your schema design and what that means for Datomic. And finally, partitions. Uh, Datomic, on, so we use Datomic on-prem. Right. Um, of course, it was the only thing that existed. 
when the when the database was made. Um, it has always had a feature called partitions, which is essentially a way to change the high bits of an entity ID mm-hmm. when you mint the entity using like temp ID, dtemp ID, for example. Um, in the beginning, the database did not use partitions because it wasn't super clear that it was necessary. Like the 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 docs talk about it as a thing that exists, um, but um, you know, it, it they didn't make very clear like when you would use this or like right. as that it was even just it seemed like just a merely theoretical possibility that you might want this feature. Um, and the point of it is really to adjust the sorting order of entity IDs so that you can um, have more locality among the segments of the tree that the, the, the segment tree of blocks of datums that Datomic is maintaining. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the database approached 4 billion datums, mm-hmm. um, query performance started to suffer significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wasn't around when this was done, um, but someone figured out or consulted Cognitech or something to, to determine what was going on. And the problem was um, there was very little read locality across entities. So picture this, um, you have two reads on a workspace, same workspace, um, they need to uh, query across, I don't know, all stories or all epics or something like that. Right. In order to serve that query, they need to visit all the datums related to that workspace. Datomic doesn't, is not, unless you do this uh, partitioning bit, uh, does not arrange those entity IDs in any order um, that would place them close together in IO in an IO sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in order to visit um, every epic, yeah. you would have to visit potentially as many uh, segments as you have epics mm-hmm. uh, because you have no you do not have a high chance or your chance is lower at least that reading, one epic is likely to already have I.O. cached and served mm-hmm. to read the next epic. So <laughs> it was becoming uh, a serious performance problem. Um, and shortly before I joined Shortcut, uh, they did their first decant. So they decanted the database. And the point of the decant was to apply partitioning. Mm-hmm. So Every entity, this is again the importance of knowing the tendency of your entities and knowing how to enumerate them all, because you might need to do something like this one day. Um, So every entity had a rule for determining its tendency, and the entire transaction log was replayed. Every entity discovered was assigned a tendency, and then the entity ID, the temp ID that it was issued, was issued one of... Uh, 512 partitions. Mm -hmm. So there are 256 partition kind of groups um, for 
so we just took all the entire key space of uh, workspace IDs and we used the bottom bits. We should have used the top bits, by the way. Uh, but we used the bottom bits um, as, or the, the, the bottom byte, really, two hex digits, as the uh, partition. Um, Why should you have used the other part? So we should have used the top because when you do value lookups on uh, things that are outside the tenancy, mm -hmm. uh, you want those values to be together too. Mm. You want the you want the ID key to also have the same clustering behavior mm -hmm. as uh, the partitions themselves. Uh, so it would have been better if we had random. So we use squids for workspaces. It would have been better if we had random ones because workspaces, you know, we have a lot of workspaces, but we don't have, uh, you know, billions of them. Um, so it would have been better to have the top bits be random. And whenever you look up a workspace by value, uh, you can rely on the index to find it. Yeah. And if we route workspaces that are in the same partition to the same machines, uh, they will tend to have those segments of even the value index for those lookups loaded already. Mm -hmm. um, so, oh well, say la vie. Uh, can't change people's IDs, really. So, uh, anyway. Right. So, this is as partitioning. You also mentioned a couple of things about uh, log processing. You're using log processing for extracting some information, how does that work for you? Sure, so um, we have a number of um, services downstream of mm -hmm. our logs um, or of our uh, you know, primary database reads and writes. Yeah. Um, so when a write happens, uh, typically a number of other things might need to happen. So, for example, we may need, we may need to send notifications. Um, you know, you took an action on a story, you were following, the someone else was following the story, we may need to notify them um, through any channel we have, like Slack or email or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, we need to capture segment events for business intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, we need to... Um, uh, index the uh, change entities in our in Elasticsearch for full text index searching. Um, you know things. You know right. typical stuff, right? There's nothing exotic here. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that's different about how we do it is we use the transaction log itself as a mm -hmm. kind of um, uh, forgot. I forgot the tat. <laughs> I forgot the pattern. Yeah. Um, the um, there's a pattern where you um, where your primary data is events, and from those you build views. Yes, event sourcing. Okay. So we use so we use a transaction log as a kind of event source pattern. Mm -hmm. um, it's not exactly that because transaction datums are not semantic changes. To your to your domain, they operate at a at a lower level, yeah. um, so it's not exactly the same, but it's close enough uh, for many cases, especially if you 
um, put a rules, a kind of rules pattern matching thing on the transaction log. So that's what we have. We have a something we call the TX2 event matcher. Um, and it is a bunch of uh, little data log query fragments. Their inputs are uh, the database before, the database after the transaction, right. and the datums. So essentially what's on the TX log. If you were to right. use TX range, this is what it's getting. Um, and each of these can match, you know, using normal data log, something that happened in the transaction. And if they match, they can extract parameters and they can produce an output, which is just an event, a little map payload. Mm -hmm. um, and we have some standardization about its shape and stuff like that for downstream processors. But this is just a library. Like any peer can pull the stream and run this function, like write their own matchers and run this function on the stuff that's on the stream. Um, we do need to add something to track where that consumer is mm -hmm. on the transaction stream, you know, like like a Kafka consumer group type yeah. thing. Um, but we just put that in Dynamo. Dynamo's around, you know, the Atomic's already running in Dynamo. Um, so that's how we get meaningful events out of just changes. Mm -hmm. um, and so for that, so that's for things that need kind of semantic events like, like segment mm -hmm. um, or notifications. Mm -hmm. But uh, we also have things that don't need that. They just need to replicate uh, what happened to Datomic in a different data model, but an equivalent domain model, mm -hmm. like so this is search indexing. Yeah. So they just read the transaction queue, uh, look for things that they index by attribute, and then regenerate an indexable thing and put it in the other service. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how search works. I see. So also doing over the years, probably upgrades of Datomic uh, to a newer version, uh, what, mm -hmm. do you, what can you say about that? It's utterly painless. Um, uh, it's mostly just finding the versions of everything and switching them. Mm -hmm. uh, Datomic's index format hasn't changed since a long time ago. I, like, I remember changing it on my first job sometime within the first year or two. Yeah. Um, they added a, they changed the index structure, I think, to solve some of the uh, right amplification problems mm -hmm. they had that made you encourage squid use. Right. Um, I don't. I still don't know exactly what they did. I think they might have added like another tier, in, in between history and mm -hmm. and you know the main index, but I don't really know. But in any case, that's the last time the index structure changed on disk. Mm -hmm. um, and for the most part, every peer can interoperate with every um, datomic with. I think a couple of exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, so you really just upgrade peers and transactor in any order. And the only thing you need to worry about is whether you're, you're trying to use a feature that your library doesn't support yet that mm -hmm. you've dependent on. Um, so it's very, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's tedious, but it's very low risk, very low pain. Um, I can only remember one case where there was a performance regression and we had to roll back, mm -hmm. um, but they fixed it within a week, I think. Mm -hmm. They fixed it very quickly. 
Um, but even then, it was just slower. It wasn't not working. Mm. Um, so interesting. Uh, would there be anything else uh, to share regarding Datomic, or maybe any other libraries that you're using uh, on the uh, in shortcut on the backend? Huh. I I don't think so. I think that's where most of our like technical coins go. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we you know we use Clojure extensively, mm-hmm. um, and we rely on it for you know moving quickly and fairly safely. Uh, and Datomic has been there along the way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just needing to decant sometimes <laughs> if we've made a mistake, right. um, which is probably the only downside of Datomic. Datomic remembers. Um, so if you make a mistake um, and you really need to preserve that history, um, you have a decant in your future, uh, which is just really hard to get wrong for or really easy, sorry, really easy to get wrong for reasons that aren't technical. They're reasons related to uh, your domain model itself mm-hmm. and what invariants you expect to hold across time. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. So. Cool. Hey, uh, it was very nice uh, to chat and uh, sort of hear the experience report uh, from Datomic. Um, and yeah, if do you, would you have anything else to add or... That's all I can think of now. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, and Thank you. About shortcut. Happy to. All right.